welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. My name is VJ. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, just to kick things off, just to warm it up a little bit, sometimes we do this. We're going to play a game together. It's a true or false game. Now, just cards on the table. There's no prizes, so just relax. And you have to play in your head, okay? So you say true or false in your head, and you'll see why I want you to say it in your head and not out loud in a moment. But here we go. In the last 45 years, the Toronto Blue Jays are one of only two teams to win the World Series back-to-back. True or false? It's true. The other team is the dreaded New York Yankees. All right. An atom is always positively or negatively charged. True or false? Apparently it's false, I think, because it can be neutral, not charged one way or the other. Anyways, I'm probably wrong on that. I'm not a scientist. Here we go. The Vatican is in the country of Italy. True or false? Okay, I'm messing with you. It technically, geographically, I suppose, you would find it in the country of Italy, but the Vatican City is its own country, in case you didn't know that. So that's an interesting fact. And lastly, this is really important. There will be no cats or country music in heaven. True or false? I'm getting emails today. I know it. There'll be no cats or country music in heaven. True or false? I don't really know. Okay, anyways, this gets a little bit harder now. Ready? Deep breath. The earth is flat. True or false? Vaccines are dangerous, true or false? A woman has a right to decide what happens to her own body, true or false? A person's medical information is a private matter, true or false? Gender identity is a personal choice, true or false? Racism is a big problem in Canada. True or false? Teachers deserve a pay increase. True or false? The church should care about climate change. True or false? 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 Man, I know I have stirred some things up today, right? There's a lot of things that we hold very dear to our hearts that we have strong convictions about that we think are really true or really not true. And leaving aside what those things are, because this is more to do with than, you know, than the World Series or cats or whatever, things that really matter to us, things that are really important to our lives and affect us and we think about perhaps on a daily basis. But setting aside which those things are for a moment, can I make a couple of observations of two things that I think are true about truth um, that actually affect how we see and think about all of it? One is that over the last uh, several hundred years, truth has become very impersonal. And, and here's what I mean by that. 
The scientific revolution of the 16th century began to say, hey, we can know things or how we know things or how we know anything is true is what can be seen, observed, tested empirically, right? The empirical data, what can be experienced and observed with our eyes and what can be tested in a lab. The scientific revolution said, this is how we know what's real and what's true. And this is what's most real and what's true, what can be seen and empirically tested. And then uh, the uh, movement of the 17th and 18th century, which is called rationalism, basically says, no, the way we know what is true is what can be rationally perceived through the, the uh, using our ability to reason and applying the laws of logic. Rationalism said, no, this is how we know what's real and true, what can be perceived, things that are, you can't see logic, you can't see reason, but it is built in, it is innate in us. It's what it means to be human that we can apply reason and the laws of logic in order to understand something. That's how we know what's true. And then fast forward to the information age of the, of the 20th century and obviously carrying right on into the 21st century in technology where suddenly the amount of information in the world exponentially increased so that no one person could know everything, only the cloud can handle it all, right? That truth in, in, in a sense was not primarily sent to us through an individual anymore, but it all exists too much information for any one person to know anything. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, I was speaking to our senior high group and one of the senior high leader said to me after, hey, did you know while you were speaking, they were all fact-checking everything you were saying on Google? Of course, because truth is up there in the cloud and it can be accessed that way. No one person has the monopoly on it. In a sense, we can say because of the scientific revolution, rationalism, and even the information age of the 20th century and carried on, in a sense, truth has become very impersonal. It exists apart, in a sense, from people. That's one observation. The other may be somewhat opposite, and yet we take it all very personally. Which is to say in the 21st century, we now have this saying, my truth. My truth, your truth, my truth is what I believe, and what I believe is not just ideas about things, but it's who I am. And so if you disagree with me or criticize what I believe, it is in a sense a way of criticizing or rejecting or attacking me as a person because I take it very personally. What I believe, my truth forms my identity. We don't have bumper stickers anymore. We have statuses, we have posts, and those are the things that represent my brand, not just what I believe, but who I am. And what's interesting about both of those dynamics in a sense that truth has become in some ways impersonal and yet that we have taken it very personally, um, this has actually affected communities of faith as well. We are not immune to this at all. In the community of faith, um, where we have uh, you know, faith in many ways where we would describe it as what we believe or convictions or statements of faith and creeds and codes of living are things that we hold very dear and, and there's nothing wrong with that, uh, to have convictions about things that we say we really believe, that there is such a thing as truth. And yet, it's almost impossible for us as people of faith in the 21st century, and actually it would seem uh, for people to adhere to any religion over the last uh, you know, thousands of years of, of human history, as long as people have been on the earth. It is very easy for us to become arrogant, proud, aggressive, defensive about our truth. And even if we aren't uh, engaging in holy wars anymore um, and using actual weapons, the new weapons we have are the weapons that are words, 
that we use in exchange and debating ideas and defending others because truth is an idea. Truth is an ideology. Truth is a belief. It is, in a sense, impersonal in that way, and yet we take it very personally because it's a rep- it represents who I am. And so it's very easy for us to go and attack other people's ideas or to be defensive when we feel others are attacking us Um, our ideas because they're attacking us. And so you can read things on YouTube where uh, so-and-so, you know, um, owns atheist in such and such a debate. Look at this person dismantle feminist in a dialogue. Like those are the aggressive kind of things that in many ways, not everyone, but people of faith, as we want to hold to convictions, get drawn into um, what we, the language we're using in this series, unhealthy conversation. If you're just joining us or just by way of refresher, we are in a series called Two Ears, One Mouth, The Anatomy of Healthy Conversation, which is to say, what does it mean for us as individuals in our interpersonal relationships, but also as a community and a community of faith to learn how to have conversations that are healthy and healing. In the last few weeks, we've talked more about the interpersonal dynamics in your life and what does it mean to actually lead with love and not with pride or self-interest. What does it mean to actually begin by listening to Jesus first? Um, And so I'd encourage you to go back there and and listen to that. Last week, we talked about, uh, you know, having a good fight. Such a thing as a good fight with people that we love and are close to us. And today we want to talk about what does it mean as, as a community of people and how we interact with the world around us who may think differently, very differently from us, um, whose truth might be very different from our truth or who have opposite truth claims, not only within the faith community with each other, but also with the world around us. And how do we learn how to have conversations that don't bring division and anger and destruction, the wars of words and ideas, but actually bring about healthy and healing dynamics in the community? Now, it might be interesting to you to know that the Greco-Roman first century world, the world in which the first Jesus followers, um, you know, planted the first church where, where faith began for the community of Jesus followers, was in a sense, though it's 2,000 years ago, lots of things were different, there were many things that were very similar. Um, the Greco-Roman world was a world full of different ideas, different religions, different gods. The Roman Empire, well, certainly the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, prior to the Roman occupation, the Roman, Romans conquering uh, the Greeks, uh, the Greek pantheon of gods and the Greek way of life and Greek philosophy and Greek ideas, which are still shaping our culture today 2,000 years later, were very prevalent um, in the Middle East, in the places that were part, that became part of the Roman Empire. And as the Romans conquered these various lands, they would allow nations like the Jews or others to keep their gods um, as long as they had to adopt the Roman gods first. And, and the emperor became part of that um, god worship, um, but also the Roman uh, system of belief beliefs and religion and faith and temples, but also household codes and the way of dealing with work and money and all of that, along with Greco, uh, the, the Greek uh, philosophy and um, the Greek pantheon of gods, Greek mythology. And so you had a, a and, and, and actually they say even every different workplace had their own god. The blacksmiths had a god. The leather workers had a god. Um, and so the, the world, the Greco-Roman first century world, where the uh, first century Jews found themselves, uh, Jesus followers, was full of different ideas, even the Jewish religion that some of the uh, Jesus followers had come out of. And so it was a world that in many ways was similar to ours, full of different belief systems. And Jesus followers themselves in the first century were in the extreme minority, 
First of all, in terms of population, there was very few of them compared to the hundreds of thousands of Romans and Greeks um, and Jews and people from all other kinds of nations all around them. Jesus followers were in the minority from a population standpoint. They were in the minority from a power standpoint. They had no power. They did not have the power of synagogue that the, the Jewish community had that they had come out of and the Jews had kicked them out of the synagogue because they thought they were crazy. Um, the, uh, the Romans had power over them because obviously the Roman Empire is the most powerful empire on earth. And, in, and they also were in the minority in terms of their ideas in what they thought about money and sex and work and family and faith and the human person. Actually, and maybe you've heard me say this before, if you were a Jesus follower, you lived in a world where your ideas and your way of life and your belief and your truth was considered A, stupid or foolish by the Greeks, by Greek philosophy, evil by the Jews around, because how could you ever believe that God, um, the sovereign, unapproachable God who created the world could become an ordinary human and how could you say his name was Jesus of Nazareth, that somehow that would be God. That was evil to the Jewish people. And the Romans thought it was dangerous because the first century Christians went around everywhere saying, no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. They were a threat to the empire. And so first century Christians, though they lived 2,000 years ago from us, found themselves in a world that thought what they believed and what they called truth was stupid, evil, and potentially even dangerous. And so in many ways, while we or some of us who identify as Christians say, oh, we fight so far, we don't like feeling like we're in the minority. We don't like feeling, and we have to fight for power and we need to get back to the good old days when they used to have prayer in schools. Well, the good old days judged by 2,000 years ago, not that different than where we find ourselves today. Powerless, operating from the margins, living in communities and are surrounded by people, whether they say it out loud or not, ultimately think that what we hold as true is stupid and evil and possibly even dangerous. And to that community, the Apostle Paul writes many letters. We're going to read a portion of a letter that he wrote that helped them saying, hey, as you are thinking about what is true and what it means to interact with the world and other people who think differently from you, who don't believe that what you think is true is true, where you have opposing points of view, how are you meant to live and operate in a world of Jesus followers like that? I want you to listen to just these few verses because they uh, give us something other than truth that is very impersonal or truth that we take very personally. And he leads us into actually a different way of thinking about it. And even, listen, even if you're not a Jesus follower, this, what you're going to find out, this is actually good news because maybe you left church or you left faith or you left religion or you stayed away from it for a long time because of you basically saw it was just like everything else, sort of divided or hypocritical critical. This is going to be good news to you as well. So let's have a listen. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Friends, for you and I and those of us as we live in this world where we are tempted to see truth as simply about ideas and ideology and what can be reasoned or understood or proved in a scientific lab where truth in a sense has become impersonal, it's up there in the cloud. 
and where we tend to take these things very personally and so it's very easy to go on the attack or feel attacked. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, in a way, <laughs> says it differently. He says, this is about a person and this is about people. That what we are talking about in conversation with others, remember, this is about a person and this is about people. He's actually writing from jail. And he says to the church, listen, pray for me and for yourselves that somehow we would have an opportunity, he says, to make known or to tell others about the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. This is the thing that I am most concerned about when it comes to, he's saying, this is what I want to say most. This is what is top of my mind. Even here in prison, the one thing I want you to pray for me is that I would be able to talk about a person. His name is Jesus. And he says, the mystery of Christ. And that word, when he talks about the mystery of Christ, it almost has a double meaning, double opposite meaning. On the one hand, he's talking about things that we didn't know and understand about God and about ourselves before Christ, but now we know. So in a sense, things that used to be unknown, but now Christ has made the mystery known. Um, but also mysterious as in, it's almost too good to believe. It's almost too good to comprehend. He actually uses this phrase, and maybe you're familiar with it, you've heard it before, maybe you never have. He uses it a couple times in this letter, and actually uh, Paul uses it a few times in other letters when he's trying to describe what the good news about Jesus is, and he calls it the mystery of Christ. And I went through and I just kind of looked at a bunch of those other passages and I read them all. And I want to summarize this for you because if you're... <laughs> Is this guy in jail? I mean, it's about as bad as it could get for him. He ends up getting thrown in jail because, as, he said, he as I said, he lived in a culture where they thought his ideas were stupid and evil and dangerous. And so he gets, he gets thrown in jail for talking about the mystery of Christ. He says, all I want to do is keep telling people about him, about this mystery. And so we need to go, what does he mean by the mystery of Christ? Why is this so important to him? How has this captured his heart? What, is, what has he done here to make truth so personal, the person of Jesus Christ? And here's the summary of what this means. The mystery of Christ. I just want you to take this in, and maybe you've heard it before, you've never heard it before. This is, if I just have summarized all of these verses and put it in my own words um, to summarize, what is the mystery of Christ? That for reasons of love alone, God became like the ones he was trying to reach. For reasons of love alone, God became like the ones he was trying to reach. He made it personal. He became one of us. That God's love in Christ is for every single person, regardless of race, background, wealth, gender, education, or past choices. God's love in Christ, this is a mystery, Paul says, that somehow this isn't just for one ethnic group or one people group because that's how the ancient world understood religion. It was based on your ethnicity. It was based on your skin color. It was based on your morality. It was based on your bank account. He says, this is the mystery that God's love in Christ is for everyone, no matter any of those things. This also is the mystery of Christ, that God chose to overcome his enemies by dying for them. The cross of Christ, that Christ would give up his life, is a mystery. It's incredible. This is how God chose to overcome evil with good, by dying for his enemies. This is the mystery of Christ, that through his death, people who otherwise were at odds with each other have become one. Paul uses this word mystery to say God has united people that otherwise would have been against each other. He has united people otherwise had nothing to do with each other. He has united people who had different ideas of truth, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, everything. 
This also is the mystery of Christ, that you and I, as a result of this, have become adopted as children of God into God's diverse and beautiful family. <laughs> this is a mystery too. Isn't it incredible? We have become part of God's family. And then he says it's a mystery to know this, that Jesus at this very moment is working to bring reconciliation and unity to all things and all people. <laughs> that is the mystery of Christ. It blows our minds. And Paul says, can you just pray for me and pray for yourselves that somehow we would have a chance to talk about Christ <laughs> because of all of these things that God has done for us in Christ. This is the mystery that's no longer a mystery. We want to make it known to other people, even as God has made himself known to us. This is so personal for him. This is about the person of Jesus. I'll tell you, this kicked my butt when I read it. Because you know what? I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things that I talk freely about, that I'll say out loud, or that I might post, but sometimes then if I'm too afraid to, I'll just say out loud to people who think exactly like me because I'm too afraid of uh, people who not like me or I'm not going to say it in a sermon, but I'll just say it to someone else. There's lots of things that I talk about that have nothing to do with Jesus, that are not centered around this beautiful mystery of God and his work made known to me in Christ. It just kicked my butt. And I think that's true about you. There's lots of opinions and ideas that you have and things that you're very vocal about and think a lot about that have nothing to do with the person and work of Jesus. And as Jesus followers, we need to realize this is personal. This is about a person. Truth is a person. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology. It's not a belief system. It's not a creed. It's not a set of propositional statements. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And Paul says, just pray for me somehow and pray for yourselves that we will be able to somehow tell others about him. He says, this is, this is why I'm in prison, by the way. I was willing to give up my personal rights and freedoms so that some people somehow might know about Jesus because he is truth. This is not about uh, um, an idea. This is about a person. And this is about people. He goes on to say this in verse six. When he's talking about this, okay, you're going to make Christ known and now think about the people around you. This isn't just about Christ the person. Think about the people around you. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. He says, as you interact with other people, not about ideas or ideology, about beliefs, but about Jesus, as you interact with them as people, let your conversation be full of grace and salt. This word grace uh, for Paul is synonymous with the idea of grace in terms of the way God has treated us. Whenever he, he talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by that he means Christ's compassion for us while we are sinners or while we are weak, that he has forgiven us and strengthened us and healed us. Christ's kindness for us. Christ's sacrifice for us, that he would become human. He would become like the ones he was trying to save, that he would die for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is his favor and his blessing and his love. And so when he says, hey, 
when be gracious with other people in your conversation let there be kindness compassion love understanding self-sacrifice as you interact with other people and he says seasoned with salt <laughs> and and I, I love eugene peterson's translation of that um, idea of seasoned with salt in the message because i think it really puts it into context here when what paul's talking about is how do we make christ known how do we somehow tell others about jesus how do we introduce them to jesus he says be gracious but also listen to this this is the message translation of verse six. The goal is to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down or cut them out. <laughs> you love that? The goal is to bring out, that's what salt does, right? It brings out the flavor. Salt doesn't stay with all the salt. It mixes in. <laughs> and as it does it, it brings out the flavor. And he says, our goal is to bring out the best in others in our conversation, that our words wouldn't cause others to be angry or hurt or defensive or to go on the tack or be vindictive <laughs> or vengeful. Our words are meant to bring out the best in them, not cutting them out or putting them down. If I can summarize what this means, I think, for us as people, as we think about what truth is and how we interact with the world that often, or people in our own family or in our own church community, who might think or believe very differently from us, it is actually a shift, right? If we make this personal about Jesus and about the people we are interacting with, this is a shift from fighting for issues with people, right? We're fighting for issues with people to fighting for people with love. This is the shift. We don't fight about issues with people. We fight for people with love. In order, like, so the point is not to win the argument. The point is not to be right. The point is not to win others over to your side. The point is to win them to the love of Christ. Because it is the love of Christ, the mystery of Christ, all those things we described that we have won that we have received from Christ. And so we speak in such a way as to, so that others might receive the same gift of love and grace and life that we have received in Christ. That all of our conversation would connect people to Christ. The goal is not to win the argument. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to win them over. Because here's the thing. Somebody could share your progressive modern view of race in the culture and in the church. And yet if they don't have Jesus, that their hearts haven't been won to Jesus, they could still be a mess. They could still be filled with bitterness and frustration. They could still feel unforgiven. They could still be creating chaos in their relationships with their family. They need Jesus more than they need to adopt your view of race. And someone could share your conservative view or your orthodox view of human sexuality, but they could still be making a mess of their heterosexual marriage. Without Jesus, they don't have a hope. You are who you are if you are anything good, not because of your ideas and your certainty of the truth, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so we want to invite people to see Jesus, not to see it our way. Um, in another uh, letter on similar issues, the Apostle Paul, um, and, and the message translation, captures his heart of what this means for him when he says, okay, this is about Christ. I'm making it personal about Christ. And this is about people that I interact with. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. I love this. He says, even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all, or some translations say a slave to any and all, in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever, 
I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message, the truth about Christ. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I love what he says here. He says, I, I didn't um, take on their way of life. It's not that the things that we are convinced of and convicted of in truth are not unimportant, friends. It's not that we're just not supposed to believe anything. It doesn't matter what's true and it's true for you and it's true for me and it doesn't all matter. That's not true. There are things that we say, no, this is truth and it always has been truth. But his point is, I entered others' way of life. I, I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and I tried to experience it from their point of view with grace and with salt. It is how we interact with the world when we believe that truth is actually a person and not an ideology or belief system or a creed. And that that truth has changed the way we interact with the people around us. One final comment on this passage that I think is super helpful for us. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Pray for me and for yourselves that you'd make the most of every opportunity. And the Greek word there is kairos. The Greeks had two ways of talking about time. One was chronos, where we get chrono chronology or chronological or a watch brand that measures hours and minutes and days. But Kairos says, not all hours or moments are created equal. Make the most of every opportunity doesn't mean make every hour count. <laughs> what it means is there are some hours and some moments that are full and pregnant with the possibility of Jesus being present with you and with someone else. In that moment, don't miss an opportunity to connect people to Jesus, to make it about him and not about you and not about the issues. Be aware there are opportunities that will arise where suddenly Christ is present with you and with others and he who was a mystery before is now made known to them and to you. What does an opportunity look like? Someone coming up to you and saying, tell me everything you believe about Jesus. <laughs> well, maybe, but I don't know about you, that's never happened to me. Nobody comes up and says that. Well, what is an opportunity? Maybe elect an election in your municipality is an opportunity. Maybe a documentary that your friend shared with you that just went viral is an opportunity. Maybe someone in your family posted a TikTok video. Maybe a worldwide pandemic is an opportunity. Maybe a protest in your city is an opportunity. Maybe an angry editorial in the newspaper is an opportunity. How could that be an opportunity? <laughs> I want you to listen to this story, how that very thing, an angry editorial in a newspaper, became an opportunity for Jesus to be made known. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. 
in our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug, Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun, can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything, Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. What I love about that story was it was an impersonal editorial, obviously something that was very hurtful for that person, and they put it out there for the world. <laughs> and someone who read it, someone who knew Jesus, made it personal for them and reached out <laughs> and initiated a relationship that put Jesus eventually at the center because it's about him. <laughs>
and it's about people. So here's my suggestion for you, and I want to get really practical with you on this because if you're anything like me, you just need help and handles. How do I do this? Let me just say, if you've been really bothered about an issue, maybe it's time to make it personal. <laughs> if you've been really bothered about an issue, and maybe there's a few or maybe there's just one, or maybe there's just one you've had a lot of questions about, you've just been wrestling with, and you may even say it's bothering you, but you've been thinking about it a lot. It's time to make it personal. First, with Jesus. If truth is a person, we need to know that person and let him reveal truth to us. To actually ask him, last week we said to ask the question, Jesus, what do you see? And there's a prayer exercise that many of you did in your home groups a couple of weeks ago that um, you can just scan here if you want to do it again. If you're anything like me, you need to do these multiple times. But this is actually inviting Jesus to speak into an issue. So um, the exercise is there for you on the screen. You can scan the QR code if you want to do that. Um, actually, it's an exercise that takes you through on any issue in your life. But let's say in this particular one where you're like, this has been about an issue, but I haven't invited Jesus, the person, into it. So you can scan that and go ahead and do that. I guess, secondly, what I would say to you, you know, like if this is about a person, this is about Jesus himself, when was the last time that you were floored by the mystery of Christ? Like we can get all heated and amped up with each other or against each other about stuff, but when was the last time you were floored, emotionally arrested by Jesus? We have these things called encounter prayer and worship nights. We have an encounter night coming up on November 19th. The whole point we call it encounter, is for you to meet Jesus, for us to meet Jesus, for us to let the living truth transcend all of the issues because truth is a person. It's not an idea or an ideology, a belief system, or a set of creeds. It is about him, and we need to see him and know him and make it personal in our relationship with him. And I would lastly say also, if he is the living truth, he is the truth. He's the one who has the right to tell us what to believe. Maybe your neighbor doesn't, maybe your mom doesn't, maybe your pastor doesn't, but Jesus does. And so the Bible reading plan that we're encouraging you to do is to let you speak truth, let him speak truth into your life, to wrestle with Jesus, the living truth. Say, Jesus, that's hard. I don't know about you, but doing the Bible reading so far, I'm like, there's some things that Jesus says that are hard. <laughs> there's some things that are beautiful, other things that's hard. It's like, really, Jesus? I gotta wrestle with you, the living truth, to let your truth become mine. So some of you, if you're struggling with an issue, make it personal with Jesus. And for others, you need to make it personal with someone else. Like if you've been amped up or heated about an issue, but you don't know any person connected to that issue, you need to change something. You need to make it personal. Maybe it's having a conversation with someone who thinks differently than you. Someone who has a very different opinion or a very opposing view, and maybe you've been battling out on social media, or maybe you've been avoiding the conversation in church or in your neighborhood or at school, ask the question. Tell me more. Hey, I know when we talked about this, this seems really important to you, or you think this. Explain to me more. What do you think? Why? I want to hear. I want to know. <laughs> this is about grace and seasoning with salt. To make it personal, as in attach a person. This isn't an issue. There are people connected to every issue and we need to know the people tell me what you think someone who thinks differently from you or perhaps someone who is different from you to connect with someone who is very different from you 
for those of you kind of wrestling through and thinking through the LGBTQ plus conversations that are happening in our culture and in our church and in our families and our youth groups, uh, Preston Sprinkle, who is the head of the Center for um, Faith and Gender and Sexuality, put out a short film on Vimeo. You can find it. It's called Dear Church, I'm Gay. And that is a great step. If you, if you have a lot of beliefs and ideas and opinions about the issue, but you perhaps don't know anyone connected to it personally, that's a great way to hear people's stories and their journey with it, just to help you make it personal for yourself. Remember, the goal is not to win the argument or to get somebody to change your mind. It is to make it about people. Jesus first and the people he invites us to talk with. It's to talk with someone not only who thinks differently from you, but who is different from you. Friends, the reasons to do this, I mean, there's lots of good reasons in terms of what it'll produce <laughs> in terms of healthy conversation, but maybe the ultimate reason is this, that you and I who know Christ were at one point enemies of God. The scriptures say that we were at odds with God, that we were enemies with God, that we were separated from him, that we were on the other side of the issue, <laughs> maybe on the other side of the chasm. And God chose to deal with us in grace and love and compassion. He came all the way to us. He became one of us. He loved us, taught us, died for us <laughs> to make us friends, to make it personal. Ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has treated you like that. <laughs> he did not fight with us, thank God. He fought for us with love. And that's what it means for us <laughs> to make it personal with the people around us.